community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, whatever you went through to make it to Easter service this morning, we are sure glad you are here. Hopefully you didn't forget Grandpa. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor here at Lake Forest Westlake. And uh, boy, let me just add my welcome. So honored that you guys have chosen to be with us. What a beautiful day to celebrate Easter, isn't it? I mean, can you believe it? And for those of you who got to be a part of the hunt yesterday uh, out on the land, I just was, again, just filled with gratitude and joy uh, for all that God is doing through this little church here in Denver that we call Westlake. And we are so excited you're with us. Uh, I want to start off just quickly telling you, why is it that we make such a big deal about Easter? Why is Easter such a big deal for Christians, for the church? And the answer is quite simple. You see, because 2,000 years ago, in a small fishing village, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus began his public ministry. He taught about a God who, whose kingdom wasn't just for the religious elite. It was for ordinary people, just like you and me. And over the next three years, as this Jesus began healing and restoring and delivering and forgiving, his movement began to build and build and build. Until at one point, it seemed like it was just about to take off when all of a sudden it came to a slamming halt. Jesus, the rabbi of hope, was falsely accused, wrongly convicted, beaten, and brutally executed on a cross. That was Friday. But what no one saw coming, what, what no one thought possible, was that the story wasn't over. In fact, it was just beginning because Sunday was coming. And Sunday morning, when the women went to the tomb to finish preparing the body for burial, what they discovered changed everything. The body was gone. The tomb was empty. Death was defeated. Hope had won. Sin had lost. Jesus was alive, for he is risen. Oh, that was so weak, y'all. <laughs> I tried my best. Did you feel it? Let's try that again. For he is risen. Ah, much better. He is risen indeed. Well, Easter is about celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Easter is all about. And today I want to tell you what I'm not going to talk about before I tell you what I am going to talk about. Okay, deal? So, so what I'm not going to talk about today is the historical evidence around the empty tomb, though there is much of that. In fact, I'm sorry if you came hoping for that. That's actually next Sunday's sermon, so you can just kind of camp out right here, set up the tent, and uh, in seven days we'll address those questions. I'm not going to speak about the empty tomb and the historical evidence. Today, I want to talk about what scholars call a post-resurrection appearance. You see, Jesus, after he had risen from the grave, began appearing to many of his followers, first to the women at the tomb, then to larger crowds of disciples. Some even gathered around a dinner table. But he had one special person, one assignment, one, one friend that he had not yet visited, and that was his good buddy, Peter. Today, I want to look at Jesus' encounter with Peter that comes at the very, very end of the Gospel of John. You see, you might not know Peter, but Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. 
Peter was one of the first to follow Jesus, and he was an all-in kind of guy. I mean, Peter only did stuff uh, in fifth gear. If Peter was a guitar amplifier, he went to 11. This is kind of the guy he was, right? This Peter was, he was, but Peter had made a promise the night before Jesus was arrested. He said, Jesus, whatever happens, I'll stick with you, even if I have to die. But if you know the story, Peter turned his back on Jesus. Well, to be sure, everyone turned their back. Everyone fell, but Peter fell the hardest. And though Peter gave up on Jesus, as we will see today, Jesus never gives up on Peter. And in this very last appearance, before Jesus will go to be with the Father, he comes for one person and one person alone. He comes for Peter. And what happens in that encounter will change everything in Peter's life. The story is found in John's Gospel, chapter 21. John is one of the four people that gave us uh, a biography of Jesus. John was an eyewitness to these events, and he records them with uh, very important detail. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to start right at the beginning of chapter 21. I'll have the verses on the screens. You can follow along in your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of ours as a gift to you today. Let me begin the story, chapter 21, verse 1. Here's how John starts. He says this. Afterward, after what? After the resurrection. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. There's seven of these guys out together. Peter says, hey guys, I'm going out to fish, Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this is our opening scene. John is setting the stage for what's about to happen. And what we need to remember is that this is just days after the resurrection. And we need to remember what Peter is going through. Remember, Peter had done exactly what Jesus said he would do. The very thing Peter said he would not do, he did. He denied Jesus and he denied him three times. And if you were Peter, if you were Peter, can you imagine for a moment how would you have felt in that moment, right? I imagine it'd be kind of like when your best buddy, Jimmy Bobby, because we all have a Jimmy Bobby, right? You all have a Jimmy Bobby. Jimmy Bobby called it, he texts you. He's broken down on Highway 16, right? And he says, hey, can you come help? And what do you do? You, you text Jimmy back. You say, I'm sorry, you must have the wrong number, right? You kind of turn your back on Jimmy in that moment because, you know, you're on your way to the Walmart. So he's like, so, so Jimmy's left straight. But, but see, you bail on Jimmy. This isn't Jimmy. This is Jesus, can you imagine bailing on Jesus? How would Peter have felt? I think he would have felt pretty bad. I think he would have felt pretty rotten. In fact, after Jesus was executed, I think Peter was utterly crushed, full of grief, full of a sense of having betrayed someone and the shame and the regret. So Peter does what most of us would do when life is just kind of coming apart at the seams. What do we do? We go fishing, right? Isn't that the solution to all of life's problems? Well, that's what Peter does. Peter says, hey, I'm going fishing. But notice what he's doing. He's actually running. He's running from regret, running from shame, running, running from his past, hoping to get away. But of course, as John tells us, he doesn't catch anything. 
He's hoping to not have to show his face again, ever again. And I think I can kind of relate to that. In fact, I was thinking about it in my own life sometimes when I haven't wanted to show my face after something I regret. Reminded me of my very first fender bender. Do you remember your first fender bender? Yeah, it was this morning. No, uh, here we go. It was in my 1987 Chevy Astro van. I was 17 years old. Uh, 1987 Chevy Astro van is what all the cool kids drove at my school. It was kind of a hot rod. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, this, my first accident, wasn't actually with another moving vehicle. It, it was with a stationary object. You know those yellow poles in the Target parking lot? Yeah, that's what I ran into. It was, it was great. So I'm backing up, and of course I don't see it. I back right in, Chevy Astro van. It just kind of caves in, you know, like a nice little crease right down the middle. And, but what was worst of all is it left this yellow streak from the paint on that pole right at the back, right? As if it wasn't embarrassing enough. And I remember what, coming out of that, I thought, oh, man, what is my dad going to say? I mean, I'm just going to get it, right? And it's not like I can lie and make up some good story. There's yellow paint on the backside of my minivan, well, see, I was thinking about Peter. Peter's got yellow paint all over him. Everyone knew what had happened to Peter. And he doesn't want to show his face to anyone. So he goes back to the only thing he knows. He goes fishing. But I think there's something else going on here as well. Another detail that I want us to see. Because remember, Luke tells us, Luke is another one of the guys that wrote a biography on Jesus. Luke tells us that Peter had already seen the empty tomb. Now track with me on this for a minute. You see, Peter knows that Jesus' body is no longer in the grave. In fact, some of his friends have seen the resurrected Jesus. He's heard the stories. He may have even seen Jesus from afar. But what Peter doesn't know is whether or not Jesus is going to still keep him on the team. You see, Jesus has appeared to a ton of folks, but he has left Peter out of that loop. And I think Peter's wondering, have I blown it just too much? Is, is this like a game of Pac-Man? I got three lives, I used them game over, right? Is that how this works? Do they still have three lives in Pac-Man? Yeah, say, okay, I'm just checking, I'm, I'm old. Uh, so you can imagine Peter, he's like, ah, did I blow it? Am I out of the loop? And John tells us, they fished all night, but they caught nothing, which sets the stage for what's coming next. Because sometimes it's when our nets are empty that God is able to do his greatest work. Look with me where the story picks up. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now picture this scene. Here, here's the deal. Okay, the boat is 100, 100 yards off shore, right? And there's this lone dude standing on the beach hollering out fishing instructions to the guys in the boat, right? How, how do you think that's going to work for him, right? That's not... We don't like to take fishing advice from anyone, let alone a dude standing on the shore. But here's the thing. The disciples in the boat don't know who that guy is, but we do. We, the readers, know it's undercover Jesus. And what happens next is incredible. Look, he calls out, and he's, I think he's kind of punking the guys here, right? He's like, hey, guys, how's the fishing going? <laughs> right? Oh, it's terrible, Hey, throw the net on the other side. How do you like that advice? I'm sure they took that really well, but they do it, right? 
And much to their surprise, the net is instantly filled. 153 fish will find out. But notice, notice something here. The Bible doesn't say it, but this is Aaron's imagination. I think something begins to click for Peter in that moment. Because something about the empty nets and the emptiness in his own soul starts to line up. Oh, come on, that was so good. <laughs> empty nets, emptiness. Isn't that, that's not, I mean. But seriously, something begins to register for Peter. The empty nets, the emptiness, the full nets. And I think Peter heard in his mind that line that Jesus said over and over again, I have come that they might have life and they might have it to the fullest, the full nets of life. I think the lights are coming on for Peter. And what happens next is almost comical. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he was naked and jumped into the water. Now pause for a moment. Did y'all read what I just read there? Did the pastor just say that Peter was naked fishing? Yes. Yes, he's naked fishing. Are there six other dudes in the boat? Yes, yes, Sarah. Did Peter probably lose a bet? Yes, I think, I think that's what's going on here, right? The dude's out there naked fishing. What is going on, right? Well, it's okay. So he realizes it's Jesus over there. And what does he do? Well, he stands up, he wraps his cloak around him because I guess according to the Bible, it's okay to naked fish, but not naked swim. So then he jumps off the boat into the water. He starts paddling for the shore. What is happening here? What is it that compels Peter to throw all caution to the wind, except for nakedness, and jump in the water and swim to Jesus? Have you ever had an experience like that? See, I think something overcomes Jesus, excuse me, overcomes Peter. He can't contain himself. And in the words of the great prophet, Eddie Van Halen, he decides to jump, go ahead and jump. <laughs> now, this might sound a little crazy to us, right? I mean, we would never jump in a pool with all our clothes on or in the lake or do, I mean, would we? See, I actually think we know a little bit about what it's like to experience this experience Peter did. In fact, take a look at the screens. Maybe you've had an experience like this. This guy whose uh, sports team won with the Hail Mary pass in the last seconds of the game, no! and he can't contain himself. <laughs> or this guy who, after having three girls, finally gets the boy he's longed for. Feel the emotion of these girls reunited with their fathers.
cry during the break, John Lynch. Staff Sergeant Anthony Wagner returning from Afghanistan. His kids on the board crying when they had a video message, had no idea he was here. Or perhaps best of all, Forrest Gump, who took the Bible quite literally and jumped off the boat. Wait for it. Wait for it. It's my boat. <laughs> you see, we all know what it's like to have an experience where we can't contain ourselves, right? And I was thinking just this week, I can't tell you how many times I've watched that sergeant come home to his kids. And just the emotion I feel, every, I mean, I feel even now just watching it. That must be the 20th time I've seen it every time. And I just wonder, I just wonder if, if just a little bit of what, if what I'm feeling is just a little bit of what Peter felt that day. When he saw Jesus on the shore, when he had become convinced that Jesus had given up on him, and all of a sudden, the risen Savior has come for him, and he's right there on the shore, and he can't help himself. He uses the only strength he's got, wraps it around, jumps in the water, and starts swimming. Can you feel a little bit of that? What was it in that moment that compelled Peter? Well, I want to continue with the story because I think the clues as to what drove him are in these next verses, picking up in verse 8. The other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Now, John does not mince words. Every detail that John includes in his gospel is significant. And I want to highlight just a few details in these verses to see if we can unpack this. First detail is this. Notice that when they finally get to shore, even though they think they're bringing breakfast, Jesus already has breakfast covered. Do you see that? They come in. Jesus already has the table set. And not only that, it's not like a lame breakfast of oatmeal. These guys are getting breakfast tacos, fish tacos for breakfast. This is like the richest breakfast possible. And it's just a little picture of God's grace. Even though they bring their fish, Jesus has already provided the breakfast. So they sit down to this meal it's interesting, John tells us no one's talking. Did you catch that? Everyone's silent. They're just munching on their fish tacos with Jesus. But nobody will speak up. But you see, I think Jesus is actually up to something very, very profound in this silence. God sometimes, often, is doing a deep work when it seems he is most silent. There's another detail here that seems at first to be incidental, but in fact, it is actually central to the story. John tells us that it is a charcoal fire. 
Now, Jesus prepares this breakfast on charcoal. Don't you love the smell of charcoal? Can't you just smell it right now? Aaron, can't you smell like just just like hamburgers on a charcoal grill, like like some like some I don't know like pepper jack cheese, some grilled onions, maybe some jalapenos. What what do you what else you put on your burger? Bacon, bacon. Oh man, I love the smell of charcoal. Do you love okay, back to the sermon. Here we go. So charcoal fire. Now notice this. Notice this here because I did some research on this. Do you know there are hordes of fires that appear in the New Testament? But there's only one other time that there is a charcoal fire in the New Testament. Lots of fires. Only one other time there's a charcoal fire. Do you know what it is? It's three chapters earlier. And guess who's standing at the fire? Peter. Three chapters earlier in John 18 is when Peter is standing outside of where Jesus is being tried and whipped and beaten. And he's huddled around this fire as a little girl comes up to him and asks, aren't you one of the guys that followed him? And he said, I don't even know that man. The last time Peter smelled charcoal was when he had denied Jesus. Now watch this. Jesus is up to something profound. Peter sits on the beach looking into the eyes of his master and this same aroma begins to fill his senses. And I can't help but think that Peter smelled regret. Peter smelled failure. Peter smelled his worst self and worst memories. You see, smell is a powerful thing, isn't it? In fact, some recent neurological research has shown that smell may in fact be the most powerful human sense when it comes to memory. They're linking the loss of smell to the onset of loss of memory. Even diseases like Alzheimer's can be predicted sometimes because of the loss of smell. Smells triggers memories in a way that no other sense can. So Jesus, watch what he's doing here. Jesus takes Peter's most bitter associative memory of his failure and he replaces it with a strong olfactory memory of a new one. Jesus' acceptance, his forgiveness in the blend of the burning charcoal and the roasting fish and bread. Jesus is healing and redeeming Peter's memories, giving him new ones. Do you see what he's up to? That's why the Bible says his mercy is new every morning. Do you believe that? Have you ever experienced that? What if Jesus doesn't just want you to forget your memories? What if Jesus wants to heal your memories? What if he wants to redeem the wounds of your past your self-regret or hatred, your negative self-image. What if Jesus' mercy is new every morning? And what if Jesus is inviting you to his breakfast table? Have you ever thought about that? What memory would you want Jesus to heal in your life? Well, the story doesn't end there. At some point near the end of the meal, Jesus' eyes meet Peter's and they lock for the first time. And he asks Peter this question. He says, Peter, do you love me? Now notice, 
He doesn't say, Peter, man, what a lousy friend you were. How could you blow it like that? No. Peter, I can't believe you did that. Man, you are the big... No. No condemnation. No shame. Only this question. Peter, do you love me? See, I don't think Jesus asks him this the three times he does because Jesus doesn't believe it. I think Jesus asked Peter this three times because he needs Peter to believe it. Did you notice he asks him three times, one for each time that Peter denied him? Why? Because he is rebuilding and restoring and redeeming and reconciling his friend Peter. That's what's happening at this breakfast table. That's the grace that the resurrected Jesus comes to offer. And the assurance that is seen in these questions is that as many times as we walk away, as many times as you and I turn our backs on God, be it three, 300, or 3,000, we can always be called back by the love of God to experience his mercy that is new every morning. And Peter's response I just love this. Peter is undone. He is quite literally naked before Jesus. And he says, Lord, you know everything about me. And you know I love you. And with that, Peter and Jesus are reconciled. But Jesus doesn't just stop with restoring Peter. He doesn't just stop at forgiving Peter. He's also going to give a great gift to Peter. He's going to renew Peter's sense of mission in life. Look at what the next verse says. Peter, I want to give you a new purpose. He says, I want you to tend my sheep, Peter. Peter, I want you to take care of my people, to feed them, to lead them, to protect them, all of them. The weak, the homeless, the hungry, the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the imprisoned, and the lost. Take care of my people. That's what love for me looks like, Peter. I'm giving you a new assignment, a new mission, a new purpose to live for, Peter. And you know what? That's exactly what he does. Do you know the rest of Peter's story? Jesus is going to ascend to heaven. Peter is going to go on to become one of the most influential leaders in the history of the Christian movement. He'll start in Jerusalem. He will help spread churches as far as Rome. And decades later, Peter will be in Rome sharing the good news of this mercy and grace and love available in Jesus. And he will go to his death because of his faith in Jesus in the city of Rome. Fulfilling, ironically, the promise he had made Jesus a night before Jesus was betrayed and killed. Peter discovers the greatest gift he could imagine, forgiveness and renewed purpose in his life. So, what does this mean for us today? What is the significance of this resurrection story for us, for you and me? Well, I want to suggest it's simply this. Jesus is alive. You see, it's not enough that the tomb was empty. 
Not for Peter. He had to know that his Savior lived and that his Savior loved. That was what renewed and redeemed Peter's life. And Jesus is alive and he is still inviting people to his breakfast table. And today, as the risen Jesus stands on the beach or lakeshore of your life and mine, he gives us this same invitation. The same invitation he gave to Peter and others that day to draw near to him and to receive this gift of eternal life, the abundant life now and later that only he can give. And my friends, I just want to be real clear. If you are new to this Christianity thing, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Just like Peter, we all have turned our backs on God, but Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, offers us reconciliation with God, restored to a loving, living relationship with Jesus daily so that we will never have to do life alone. Not this life now, nor the life to come. That is the hope of the resurrection. And the question this morning, the one question for us to consider is how will we respond to his invitation? How will you respond to his invitation? You see, here's the good news as far as I'm concerned. I've been a pastor for almost 20 years now, and I've seen uh, two kinds of people in response to Jesus. Think about which one of these is you. There are what I would like to call jumpers, right? Y'all know who you are. You're kind of like Peter. You're impetuous. You're impatient. You, you just kind of go here, go there. I mean, you're like, you know, you'll, you'll jump in with all your clothes on like, hey, whatever, right? Not a big deal. And then there's the other six of the, you in the room, right? And you guys aren't jumpers. You're a little more cautious. But you see, jumpers, jumpers are this. Maybe this is what you need to say to Jesus if you're a jumper today. You could pray this prayer. Jesus I'm going to pray the Van Halen prayer. I'm just going to jump. I might as well jump. That's going to be my prayer today, Jesus. I don't have to have it all figured out, but I know I want you to be the center of my life. Now, some of you, Van Halen's not your thing, right? You're not, it wasn't your, you're, you're more like the row, row, row your boat people, right? You remember that? Because there were six other disciples that didn't jump. They just gently turned their boat in the direction of Jesus and kept faithfully rowing. And that's okay too. Because the good news is that whether you're a jumper or whether you're a rower, we can all turn our boats. We can all turn our hearts. We can all turn our lives in the direction of Jesus and find mercy and grace and love every time. And the real question to us this morning is am I willing to turn my boat in his direction? Am I willing to come to his breakfast table? What does relationship with God look like? It simply looks like breakfast on the beach with Jesus. And if you've got questions, if you've got fears, if you're not certain, Jesus says, it's okay. I've set the breakfast table. Would you come? How will you respond to Jesus' invitation this Easter? Let's pray.